Morning, everyone. Today's reading is taken from Exodus chapter 4, and that's on page 60 in the Church Bibles. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took it, took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand inside his cloak and when he took it out, the skin was leprous, if if it had become as white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who gave that man beings, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them that sight or make them blind? It is not I, the Lord. Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. When the, Lord, when the Lord's anger burnt against Moses and he said, What about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know I can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will keep both of you speak I will, I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if it was if it, if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so that you can perform the signs with it. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God to his hand. As the Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, 
see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you, the power to do. But I will, hard, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then to say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had said to him and also about all the signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed that signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Shall we pray together? Father, we thank you uh, that you speak to us uh, through your word, that in these words that have been written down by uh, other human beings, nonetheless we encounter you speaking just as Moses was to speak to Aaron and be like God to him. We thank you that you speak to us like that in your word. And we pray that by your spirit you will give us ears to hear and hearts to understand uh, and help us. Uh, to respond to the God we meet. In Jesus' name, amen. So it'll be a real help if you can keep uh, Exodus chapter 4 open. It's on page uh, 60 to 61 of the church Bibles. And um, if, if I were to say to you that I think the key to understanding this verse is understanding the emergency surgery that saves Moses' life on his journey to Egypt... Uh, I wouldn't be entirely joking, but it's a strange kind of salvation, isn't it? Uh, in fact, just look with me at verses 24 to 26. It's a very strange little account. The, um, after Moses leaves Mount Sinai in verse uh, 18, we get these little snippets. It's very staccato, these moments in Moses' life between him leaving Sinai, where he sees God in the burning bush, uh, through to arriving in Egypt and um, uh, speaking to the elders of the Israelites. And, and this particular little snapshot from verses 24 to 26 is perplexing, isn't it? I mean, it's just full of weird stuff. So one of them you can't actually spot immediately in the English translation, but if you look really closely, you'll see there's a little B next to Moses' name. In verse 24, have you spotted that? If you look down to the footnote, you'll see it says Hebrew, him. So the text doesn't actually specify who it is who's dying, 
whose life is in danger. It's not totally clear. Although the fact that it's Zipporah who performs the emergency uh, circumcision on their son suggests that maybe it is Moses. He's uh, struck down with some kind of life-threatening illness. But it's not clear. It, it, it happens at night. It, 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 it's almost as if we're seeing shadows moving in the dark and we don't quite know what's going on. But what we do know is this. Someone's dying. Moses' son gets circumcised. Then blood is wiped on either Moses' feet or his son's feet or uh, another part of the anatomy that uh, feet often refers to as a euphemism in Hebrew. And then Zipporah says this sort of funny thing about you're a bridegroom of blood to me, which is a, a, in some ways a bit of a pun on now we're blood relatives, that kind of thing. Uh, but it focuses you in on the shedding of blood in this moment. What on earth is it about? What is going on? And how does that help us to understand Exodus 4 and indeed Exodus 3 and 4? Because the first half of Exodus 4 is just carrying on uh, the meeting at the burning bush that we started last week in chapter 3. So let's sort of follow the the flow of the story and see how we're doing when we get to verse 24. So big picture... God's people have been in exile in Egypt. Uh, They're slaves. They're being mistreated. Uh, The Egyptian regime has decided that actually they want complete integration. So they're going to uh, annihilate uh, the Israelite nation as a distinct racial entity. So all the boys that are born uh, to Hebrew families are to be thrown into the Nile where they'll be eaten by crocodiles or or they will drown. Uh, They're to be done in uh, in order to cut off any possibility of this people rising up and leaving uh, or causing any kind of uh, social uh, disorder of any kind. It's an old story. Uh, And it's been tried many times. But the people are heavily oppressed and facing effectively genocide and they cry out to God the God who made promises to their ancestor Abraham that they would become a great people, that he would be their God, that he would take them to a land and through them, the whole world would be blessed. They cry out to God and God hears. And we're told the extraordinary story of Moses, this baby who was brought up within the court of Pharaoh himself as as an adopted son of the Pharaoh, yet still looked after and, and taught by his mother and his sister. His mum comes to be his nurse. God provides in amazing ways in Moses' life. He's, he's, he's at work in all kinds of hidden, but in all kinds of ways that are made visible to us t- to start to set his people free. Moses tries to start an insurrection, in fact, in chapter two, but unsuccessfully. He kills an Egyptian, the Israelites, do not respond well to him. They say, who made you king over us? He's wanted for manslaughter, a capital charge. There's a death sentence hanging over him. He runs away. And then 40 years later, we picked him up at the burning bush. And God says to Moses, I want you to go and say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And 
Moses just keeps finding reasons why that is not a good idea. Four times uh, in that meeting, three of them we've already, uh, sorry, two of them we've already had in chapter three, and God's response each time is to say, look, Moses, you need to understand that it's me that's going to set the people free, not you. Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? God says, I will be with you. Moses asks, well, if, I ask, if they ask me, what is your name, what shall I say? And he says, I am who I am. That is the name you are to call me by. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, and that's repeated four times in the conversation. God identifies himself with his people, completely identifies with them, but they're not, he's, he himself is not to be understood relative to anything else. I am who I am. You can only make sense of God relative to himself. He always has been. He has no beginning. He has no origin. He can't be compared to anything else. He just is. He is the Almighty. And yet, extraordinarily, he has bound himself to a people. He has made promises to a people so that he can say, my name is, I am who I am, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the great progenitors of the Hebrew race. And and so we pick up in chapter 4, verse 1, still in that meeting at the burning bush with Moses' third objection. What if they don't listen? Well, God's already told him, chapter 3, verse 18, that they will. But nonetheless, patiently, God says, well, look, here are some signs. Your staff turns into a snake. Your hand has an apparently uncurable skin disease one moment and then it's gone the next. You know, your skin will be completely white in a sun-baked country, but put it in the shade for a moment uh, into the fold of your garment and bring it out again and it'll be brown again. There's something about God's control, God's power over Moses' body. And with the snake this sort of primordial terror for for human beings, probably a cobra, but the word snake is not a specific kind of snake because it's the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 3 of the serpent that led humanity to disaster and death by teaching them to rebel against and disobey God. But it's probably not a coincidence that God uses a snake as a sign either that... um, on the clasp at the front of the pharaoh's headdress is a cobra that stands for the power of Egypt, and in particular, uh, the, the power of the Egyptian gods and of Egyptian magic. And in that one moment, God says, I have power over everything. I am God over Egypt, and I am God over the gods of Egypt. Which is why then the third sign that he offers is a sign to do with the Nile. Because the Nile was one of Egypt's gods. The Nile was the source of all life in Egypt. The means by which all crops were watered. If the Nile failed to flood, you wouldn't eat. Uh, And Moses is told, take some water from the river. If they don't listen to the first two signs, verse 9, take some water from the river Nile and pour it on dry ground. And the water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. The source of life becomes an emblem of death. Uh, And that 
Immediately, given that we've already got verses 24 to 26 in mind, we're thinking, okay, well, there's a mention of blood already. Maybe that's significant. It's certainly significant in terms of the ongoing story because when Pharaoh refuses to believe Moses when he says, God has sent me to you to set his people free so they can come and worship on the mountain of the Lord, and Pharaoh says, no, the first plague to strike Egypt is that the entire river Nile is turned to blood. Uh, and so it's pointing forward to that first plague, but it's also, as we'll see, pointing forward to the last, to the tenth plague that comes on Egypt. So God gives totally convincing signs of his power and says these signs will be enough to persuade the people. Uh, uh, but Moses is not done with his objections. He keeps bringing up reasons why really he is not the man for the job. Uh, and, and you see how God is patiently answering all of his objections, uh, but in, in so doing, every time what he does is he points back to himself and says, Moses, I just don't think you get it. It's me. I'm going to set the people free. And just as the staff in your hand is a tool that you use in, in looking after the sheep, so in the nicest possible way, Moses, you're a tool in my hand. And so Moses says, verse 10, I'm not very good at talking. And how does God reply? Essentially, who gave you a mouth? Who gives human beings the ability to speak or to hear or to see? Who made it all? I will enable you to speak, Moses. I will teach you what to say. Again, it's pointing back to who God is, not who Moses is. This is the big point. This question of salvation from Egypt will be solved not on the basis of how skillful or how clever or how eloquent Moses is, but on who God is and on the demonstration of his power. Now, by verse 13, Moses has run out of excuses. He's run out of reasons that God shouldn't send him. And so all he's left with is a rather stammering sort of disobedience. Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Now, when you boil that sentence down a little bit, you realize that it's completely logically irrelevant as a way of speaking. Because he calls himself servant, and he calls God Lord, and he says, no. Do it another way. It's a very strange thing to say, isn't it? No, Lord. And that's something to reflect on, I think, for all of us. When, as we hear God's word and as we confront God's word in in all kinds of ways, do I really see God as Lord? Does Moses? When he says in verse 13, no, send someone else. This is the point at which God's patience begins to run out. 
God's anger burns against Moses. And he says, all right, well, what about Aaron? In fact, he's already on his way here. You see, God is not just working in Moses' life. He is working everywhere. And, and, and he's already got the pieces in motion. Look, Aaron's on his way. And you're to speak to him, and he will speak to the people. You'll put words in his mouth. Moses, you're my prophet, but it's going to be like he's your prophet. You will be like God to him. Which, just as an interesting little aside, is a helpful way of us thinking about Scripture, about the Bible. That God has put words in the mouths of others. I, I was sort of thinking, can you put a word in a pen? I don't think you can. So God, God, God has put words in the mouths of others for us. But it is like God speaking to us. It is God's word. And indeed, uh, Moses wrote the book of Exodus. And so we're experiencing that as we read it. This word God gives to his servant, which is then given to us. So there's now this sort of slightly extended chain of communication, Moses to Aaron, to the people. But God says, we'll do it that way. Again, God is incredibly patient and long-suffering even though Moses' disobedience actually reeks of a rejection of God's lordship, God gently keeps moving him in the right direction. And then verse 17, as Moses prepares to leave Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, God reminds him, don't forget to take your stick, you're going to need it. Because it's with that stick that you will perform the signs. So that's what's been going on up until the point we get to verse 18 and these little snippets that get Moses from the mountain of the Lord back to Egypt in front of the people and what's going on. So uh, Moses goes to his father-in-law says, look, I'm going to take the grandkids to Egypt to check on my people. It echoes back to, to what... Uh, uh, Joseph says in uh, Genesis about going, going out of Egypt to, to, to Canaan to see how his father is, if he's still alive. Uh, to understand Exodus, it really helps to know the book of Genesis. I'm just sort of pointing you to that. But Jethro says, yes. One miracle follows another. God has told Moses, go back. Those who wanted to kill you are dead. So he doesn't just go on his own, but he takes his whole family. The immediate physical danger in Egypt has passed. Puts them on a donkey, just store that one away for later, we won't talk about it today, but, and off they start, back to Egypt. Moses with the staff in his hands. And then verse 21, God says to Moses, right, when you see Pharaoh, this is what's going to happen. You're to perform exactly the same signs for Pharaoh that you perform for the people. But... Whereas the people will believe you and they will worship, Pharaoh will not. Now, showing that this is not something that is outside of God's control, he talks about hardening Pharaoh's heart. It's a word that means as much strengthen as harden, in the way that, you know, if you go to the gym, you harden your muscles. 
we strengthen them. God says, here is Pharaoh, this arrogant, brutal dictator who has enslaved my people. And when you go and when you show him the signs, he will not believe them. He will not obey. He will not let the people go. And I will strengthen that in him so that this goes all the way to the end. So that Pharaoh will be so sure of his convictions that he will stand up to the God who made the universe right to the point of destruction. So that God's people will be freed on God's terms. So it's not as simple as as just Pharaoh is a puppet and God is just doing what he wants and Pharaoh has no say in it. As we follow the story through, you'll you'll see sometimes it's Pharaoh who strengthens his own heart. Pharaoh is the one who makes these decisions to say no to God, no to Moses, no to setting the people free. And sometimes we're told in the background, God is at work strengthening Pharaoh's heart. It's an act of terrible divine judgment to confirm him in his own sin in his own ways. And so the crux of it then is verse 22. Pointing to the end of the plagues, there are 10 plagues that will come on Egypt. The last of those plagues is the death of the firstborn sons. Verse 22, then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go So I will kill your firstborn son. It's an extraordinary verse, isn't it? God so identifies with his people. Four times he has said to Moses in in the previous passage, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Now he says to Pharaoh, Israel, the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is my son, my firstborn son. Is that close, that dear to me? And so in setting them free, because you won't set them free, you're going to lose your firstborn son. It's a solemn and terrible sentence passed on Pharaoh and on the whole of Egypt. Blood continues to feature in this story, doesn't it? The blood of the Nile becomes the blood of the firstborn. And that, I think, is what then helps us to make sense of verse 24, because it's immediately after God says to Pharaoh, I will kill your firstborn son, that we suddenly get someone else whose life is in danger, verse 24. It's the very next verse. Whether it's Moses or Moses' firstborn son, in one sense, doesn't matter enormously. There is this chilling encounter with the mighty God in which it becomes clear that God does not play favorites. Moses is in just as much danger meeting God as Pharaoh is. And it revolves around his firstborn son who is circumcised in this moment. Now why is that so significant? Why does circumcision matter so much to God, why, why is that the thing that, that staves off death here? 
Well, there's something to do with the blood, and there's something to do with Genesis chapter 17, in which God gives Abraham a covenant that is like a sworn relationship, a relationship that goes right to the identity, the heart of your identity. God, God says to Abraham, this is going to be the sign of the covenant, that every male Israelite is to be circumcised. And in chapter 17, verse 10 of the book of Genesis, he says to Abraham, and any male who is not circumcised is to be cut off from the people, will not belong to my people, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the sign of circumcision, that mark in the body, was a mark of belonging to God, of being in covenant with God, of being in, in this kind of sworn relationship with God in which God says, I am yours and you are mine. And for whatever reason, Moses has failed to honor the covenant in his son, in his own firstborn son. So we've got Pharaoh's firstborn son and Moses' firstborn son. And where Moses rejects God's covenant, there is every bit as much danger as when Pharaoh does. Uh, and, and the same is true then when you get to that tenth plague, when the plague of the firstborn comes over Egypt. If you know the story, you will know that the people of Egypt, they had to sacrifice a lamb in place of the firstborn son in every family and put the blood of that lamb, just as the blood of um, uh, Moses' son is, is, is sort of applied to the body here in uh, verse 25. Uh, the blood of that lamb that was, that was killed, that was sacrificed, was put on the doorposts of the house and that was a sign that blood had already been shed here and the firstborn of the Israelite family would not die but because of that blood that had been shed and so there's a sort of picture of that going on here and no no one was no male was allowed to eat the Passover meal was allowed to be part of that sacrifice and receive the safety that it offered from the destroying angel unless they were circumcised. So it does point, it all points to the, to the Passover, to God's rescue of his people through the shedding of blood, through the death of firstborn sons. But it is only because of that relationship that God's people have with him, that covenant, and coming under the cover of that, that they are safe. How can I put that another way? How about I say this? God is no one's pet. God is not domesticated or tame. He doesn't play favorites. He is pure and holy and just. And he isn't safe. There is a danger that we become so familiar with God that we exchange, as one wag put it, God Almighty for God Almighty. That we treat God as though somehow a little bit in the way that a four-year-old would relate to the prime minister. You know, four-year-olds are bold and innocent enough 
that confronted with any kind of glorious or majestic person, they, they would happily just run, run up and sort of tug on the trouser leg. Uh, they, they're, they're not afraid. And that's rather a delightful thing, isn't it? But we're not four-year-olds. And God is not tame. As C.S. Lewis put it, God is not safe, but he is good. And this passage points to that in all kinds of ways. Points to it to that in the way that God has completely bound himself to his people so that he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is my identity. That he says to Pharaoh, or tells Moses to say to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. I have bound myself to these people. And if you're in the covenant, if you're part of that relationship, if you're in the family of God... He has promised blessing. He has promised to be good to you and to take care of you. This is what uh, the Apostle John, we heard from him uh, from chapter 3 earlier on as we were uh, confessing our sins. Uh, Here again is John reflecting on our relationship to God and what it looks like. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. This is 1 John chapter 4 starting at verse 7. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we may love, live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In the end... The reason Israel gets to be treated as God's firstborn son, the reason that we get to escape in the way that the Egyptian Pharaoh's son did not is that God gave his own firstborn son in our place. And his blood was shed so that ours need not be. So that we might know God as a friend. That we might know him as completely committed to us and therefore approachable. It is only when hidden within that covenant relationship, it's only when we have Jesus that God is safe to approach. Otherwise, he's terrifying. And this encounter with Moses points to that, the need to trust in God's covenant promise and so for us what that means is the need to trust for ourselves in Jesus not to just assume well God's nice he, you know I don't really need to have anything in place in order to be in a relationship with him yes we do we need Jesus and without him there's no hope for us that's the sobering reality And where does that lead us? Well, it leads us with God's people to recognize that God is not at our disposal. He is not a useful addition to our lives. We are at his mercy. Everything is under his control. So it is absolutely sensible to pray when we're in need and to trust him for our needs. But he's not there 
to simply serve our needs. We're at his mercy. We belong to him. He really is God. So notice what God says to Pharaoh, or what says, God says through Moses to Pharaoh about what he wants for his people. He says he wants to let his people go, so let my son go, verse 23, so he may worship me. Look how the story ends in, in verse 4, as Moses and Aaron go to the elders and, of the Israelites and, and perform the signs. They believe, and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. What God wants for us is for us to come into that sort of relationship with him, to become worshippers, to recognize, no, you're not at my disposal. I'm at your mercy. You are God. I belong to you. I worship you. And that is unbelievably thankful worship, isn't it, when you reflect on the fact that God gave his own son to spare us. It is a wonderful and beautiful thing. God is not safe, but he is good.